Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Coppola Connections, the podcast where I shake every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week we looked at being John Malkovich with Charlie McGee of the Retro Ramble podcast and this week it's well it's one of two episodes that I will be dedicating to Francis Ford Coppola's 1982 romantic musical drama One from the Heart. The first episode will be my discussion with Boyd Hilton, the absolute legend that is Boyd Hilton, to talk about the film as a whole and kind of um, sing its praises. This is a film that not many people tend to sing the praises of, but but me, me, me and Boyd want to do that. So uh, yeah, we're going to do that. And then next week, I'll be joined by a return guest, uh, Mr... David Mills, who joined me for my conversation on Mandy way back when in December time, but he joined me way before then because uh, of recording. But you don't need to know that. Where well, we will be doing a track by track of the film's score, well, soundtrack that was written by Tom Waits and performed by Tom Waits and Crystal Gale. So be sure to check out that next week um as for this episode we will of course be talking about the film in all the gory details there'll be spoilers aplenty so if you haven't seen this film uh good luck watching it on streaming it seems to be one of those ones that uh allude streaming i know recently it was on movie in the uk and us but has since gone so um I will chuck it in the show notes in the handy document that says if and where films are streaming, just in case you're listening to this at a later point than of release, and it may have been added. If you would like to support the podcast and get some extra Nick Cage-filled chat with myself and Boyd, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash pod, where for as little as... Three dollars, like three pound, two pound fifty a month. You can get a whole host of bonus chats that are Nick Cage filled. I asked my guests, "What is? Uh, are they a Nick Cage fan? First and foremost, uh, which was their first and which is their favourite Nick Cage movie? There's plenty more stuff coming. I keep saying that, but there's uh, yeah, there's some patron stuff coming in the pipeline that will be for the. Uh, the free dollar and the five dollar donors and uh, yeah do check that out so all that's left to do is to break up with your long-term partner try and find some love in las vegas and run off to bora bora as we make some coppola connections in the godfather he explored the violent world of organized crime in the godfather part two he examined the soul of power and corruption in Apocalypse Now, he journeyed into the madness of war. Now, Academy Award winner Francis Ford Coppola and Zoetrope Studios take a very special look at love. One from the heart. It's been five years since my last dream came true. I mean, what was that? The day I met Hank. I wish I had a dollar for Each time I took a chance I really love her. I know that. On all those two-bit Romeo 
who count up in Roma. Maggie, do you believe in true love? Knowing that you fall in love. I love you, baby. Mm, I love you. Baby, this one's from my heart. What do you think this means? It means we're splitting, I guess. This one's from the heart. Fanny and I busted up. I want to live. This is what I want. I want to go out with a bunch of guys. I want erotic things to happen. I could have 50 chicks tomorrow, honey, if I wanted to, you know? Little boy blue, lost little pokey. She fell through a hole in the neck. What, I look like I got a broken heart? Yes. And Out with the old and in with the new. I'm going straight to hell on this dress, honey. Tonight's going to be a very special night. Ah! You dance divinely. I know. Well, the truth is you're a very lucky lady. I don't know. I think Franny's off with some Rudolph Vasilino-looking guy. I don't know. Did you make love to that guy? Of course I did. Was it passionate? Yes, very. You don't have to say very. You know, you could just say yes, but no, you gotta say very. It's neon and glitter. Let's run away from Las Vegas. Junkyards and paradise. To Bora Bora and other romantic places. Listen. Loneliness, laughter, and tears. Hey, come on home. Come on back, Freddy. This one's from home. It's heartache and happiness, music and fantasy, broken dreams and happy endings. I love her! This one's from the heart. Francis Ford Coppola presents a new kind of old-fashioned romance, one from the heart. On this episode, we're looking at Francis Coppola's, as he's credited in the film, this small film he made after spending five years in the jungle making Apocalypse Now. One from the Heart was released in 1982. To some, it's a bloated mess. To others, it's an underrated masterpiece. To discuss this new take on the studio musical, A Fairy Tale for Adults, uh, some may say, which started as a small affair and went on to personally bankrupt Francis Ford Coppola, is legendary journalist, broadcaster, podcaster. And for this episode, the mo to my Hank, I have the absolute pleasure of jetting off to Coppola's Las Vegas on a soundstage with Boyd Hilton. How are you, Boyd? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, nice to see you. Um, oh I'm excited God. to be talking about this remarkable film. Amazing. <laughs> well, before we get into One from the Heart and we kind of really, yeah, get the lid off of it, um, Mm. When did you first become aware of the Coppola family as the, an entity, as I've been calling them? Because they kind of are this mm. weird spider's web of a family. Well, um, the first time I suddenly became aware of Francis Ford Coppola um, in the 70s um, when I was a teenager and became, into, became interested in films and who directed them. And so by the time I would say I was... Um, 12, 13, something like that. Um, I was aware of him directing The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, particularly. And then um, when Apocalypse Now came out, I went, I saw that in the cinema wow. and was 
absolutely had my mind blown <laughs> by that. Um, and so it was all about him for me, yeah. And then I guess in terms of the family, once Nick Cage started popping up in his films, um, which he did, yeah, quite quite free, quite early on in Nick Cage's <laughs> career, um, I, I I I found out that they were related, and so yeah, I, I would say it was all about that really. But it's all about Francis for me. Yeah. So as a as a yeah as, as a journalist, have you ever met a Coppola? Have you ever had the the pleasure or displeasure? Uh, do you know what I was trying to um, before when I was preparing for this podcast? I was trying to work out whether. I think I met Nick Cage. I'm pretty sure I met Nick Cage. I mean, how, I, I know it sounds stupid to say, but I went to the Cannes Film Festival a couple of times. And the first time I went, I'm pretty sure um, I shook his hand. Um, but Because I got into the, the... They have this whole lavish kind of um, jury. The, the Cannes jury have this big lunch affair <laughs> in Cannes. I, got, I was reporting on it for Richard and Judy, the Cannes <laughs> Film Festival, for a week. It was a dream job. And my memory is that Nick Cage was there at this lavish jury um, lunch, and I'm sh- and I was introduced to him, shook his hand. But that may be a dream. I was trying to check it. I was trying to check. Was he there the year I went to Cannes? But it's. But I'm pretty sure I did. So that's my. I think that's my my my. But I certainly didn't converse with him more than saying hello, big fan, etc. Yeah, so I, I did a little like preliminary Google with your name and Nicholas Cage's, and it oh, did came- you? It Amazing. came up. It came up with BBC uh, Radio Five Live, and it would have been. Right. A, but like, I was like getting excited. I was like, "Oh, Boyd's interviewed Nicholas Cage." It was like on yeah. one of the episodes of you and uh, yeah, uh, it's a Boyd and Floyd episode. But then yeah. it was Colin Patterson. Uh, ah, yeah, was on the episode That's too. Annoying. And he, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like 2012, and I got I got all excited. I was like, "I'll listen to the episode." And I was like. Ah. It's bloody not Boyd doing the interview. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, the year, I mean, that, that rings a bell. I remember, I, I remember not interviewing him. <laughs> <laughs> um, the year I went to Canyasi was 2001, 2002. This is me trying to work it out now. And um, at that point, 2001, 2002, Nick Cage was in Captain Corelli's Mandolin. And I think. Yeah, it must have been about that. That and then adaptation was the next mm-hmm. was the next year, two thousand two. I'm pretty sure he was there at Cannes, and and, and yeah. So I'm I'm sticking with that. That that's my <laughs> that's my that's my line. Amazing. I definitely met I definitely met Woody Allen, and um, who's one of my heroes still. I'm so I'm I'm, I'm sticking with him. <laughs> um, I don't, and um, uh, who else did I meet that year? Um, um, Harrison Ford. I interviewed Harrison Ford. So it was an incredible experience being at Cannes for me oh, yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah i mean well yeah hope like from all the news we're, we're hearing or have like the the titters that nicholas cage will be returning to Cannes with his new film pig yeah if if, if, yeah. if if you kind of read about it, it sounds like john wick with a pig but like sounds like it's going to be something i mean what more could you want yeah exactly exactly so yeah. um what would have been the first Oh, you you kind of mentioned you've already you you saw Apocalypse Now in the cinema, but what would have been the first mm. Francis Ford Coppola film you would have seen? The Godfather. I think I saw The Godfather um, on TV uh, when I I must have been I was really young. I mean, I was very precociously <laughs> um, into films. Um, I always tell the story that my dad took me to see um, Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill, which is a massively inappropriate. Um, mm-hmm. 
stalk and slash film <laughs> when I was 13. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I saw um, The Godfather about the same time. And then The Godfather Part Two, which of course, as everyone knows, is the superior sequel. Um, so it was around then, yeah, 12, 13 years old. And um, they're pretty good, both of those. Yeah, that's... Uh... I think it's a similar, or like my, my dad didn't show it to me, but it's definitely like, it feels like a, a rites of passage, especially for like teenage boys to watch The Godfather or it's yeah, kind of right. like The Godfather Scarface to like watch. Yeah, the, exactly. At a really young age. Yeah. So, um, 100%. Let's talk about One from the Heart. This kind of, because mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. Like when you, when you suggested it, I was like, this is a massive blind spot for me. And I was just kind of like looked up the poster. I was like, wow, like the, you shouldn't judge book by its cover, but I was like, if I am, that looks fucking fantastic. How have I never heard about this? And then watched it and I was like, wow, this is, this is fascinating and like mm. beautiful. But then obviously a lot of kind of, when I started to read into it, I was like, oh, a lot of people do not like this film. And it's got like, possibly one of the most interesting kind of stories around it i know we're getting like the the godfather story as a limited series it's like where's yeah. the where's the well, where's the rise and fall yeah. of zoetrope well i think i said when um when it was announced that the godfather that that series you're talking about um which is coming along, isn't it, for the Paramount Paramount's um, streaming service when that was announced i was, and, and and of course there's there's a brilliant documentary Heart of Darkness about um, mm. the filming of um, Pockets Now, directed by Francis's wife, uh, Eleanor. Um, but there, are, there are these, yeah, these um, direct documentaries and dramas about the making of Francis Coppola's films. But for me, yeah, I want to see the one from the heart one more than anything. <laughs> that book still hasn't been written. I, I, I mean, honestly, for years, I, the back of my mind nagging away is, you know, I want to write the book about the making of one from the heart because it's such a bizarre, unique and interesting film. And it, did, as you say, bankrupt, bankrupt him pretty much. It, um, it was a massive folly along the lines of legendary um, director follies like Ishtar mm -hmm. and um, Heaven's Gate mm -hmm. and, and um, uh, 1941, Steven Spielberg's 1941. Um, these unbelievably expensive, uh, very self-indulgent um, films from the maverick, the great maverick American directors really. And it fits into that, but it's weirder than all of those, I think. It's like, it doesn't make less sense in, in, in a way than even 1941, which is another film I love. So I love Stephen Spielberg's <laughs> 1941. For similar reasons, probably, to I love this. Very studio-bound, artificial, mm -hmm. spectacular kind of quality it's got to it. Um, so it's a unique, yeah, it's such a unique story. And he invented lots of filmmaking, he invented, you know, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but he invented this whole idea of... Um, a video of, of, of kind of pre-filming the thing on video while he was making it, while it was yeah. being filmed. And he edited it on his this, this video thing that Sony made for him specifically. The whole thing is shot on the sound stages of the studio. He bought to Zotrop Studios. It says at the end, filmed entirely on the set, including the airport. They recreated the airport in Las Vegas and the plane. What's... And they recreated, you know, actual Las Vegas <laughs> hotels yeah. and the strip. They just, instead of filming it at Las Vegas for some <laughs> fucking reason, he decided to recreate those things at massive expense in his studio. All of this stuff is so bizarre. Um, 
And it's a musical without when where the characters don't really sing <laughs> themselves. You know, there's a couple of times they do, and it's not very good. Um, <laughs> pointed, pointedly, deliberately, all the songs are sung by Tom Waits and Crystal Gale on the soundtrack. Um, it's just bizarre, and it's a love story where, I mean, again, we'll get into this, the, the the plot, and I use that in heavy heavy quotes. <laughs> where basically a couple get bored of each other go off for a bit and then get back together, kind of, but it's not really that, it's just kind of, that's it, really? That's it? You know? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you for a plot synopsis, but that that is basically it, right? Yeah, well, I'll give of... the more detail, right, the more detailed one. Fourth <laughs> of July, this couple, this couple that have been together for a few years are clearly bored with each other and trying to maintain some level of excitement in their relationship and in Las Vegas. And... um Hank, he's like a he's like a uh, a mechanic. He's like a lug, a big lug, <laughs> uh, doofus, a gigantic doofus. Terry Gar, Franny, she works in um, in a uh, stage, not stage, a travel agent. She keeps dreams of going to Bora Bora. Um, they have a big argument. They have a couple of arguments actually. <laughs> they she runs, she goes off. She meets this kind of um, I find slightly slightly unattractive. He's supposed to be an incredibly sexy guy called Ray, played by Raúl Julia, Raúl Julia. He meets Nastasia Kinski as like a showgirl slash slash circus girl. Yeah, Layla. They both have these dalliances that inter intercut between the two of them for most of the film. That takes up most of the film, um, including a spectacular kind of dance sequence um, for Terry Gar and Raúl Julia outside in, on the streets of Vegas, well, the, the, the fake streets of Vegas as recreated yeah. in the film. And then she goes, she goes off with him and then so, I fly off and somehow she gets back, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. about half an hour later. <laughs> so she's got the plane to go back and drop her back off in Las Vegas. And she stays with, spoiler alert, she stays with Hank. And that's it. That is it. So to your point about, like, it all being filmed on a soundstage is... There's almost this thing that Francis Ford Coppola's like shell shock by the whole thing of filming Apocalypse Now. It's almost like he kind of because you hear these yeah. stories that he was directing from like this uh, Winnebago and like kind of mm. really had these aspirations to be like a kind of he, he always cites John Frankenheimer and his kind of live TV events and stuff like that, where it would be like. He wanted it to be like live TV where it could be like cut to camera four, cut to camera yeah. two. And like, I yeah. think the initial plan was for the whole film to be filmed on like a multi-cam setup. And he was like, with the restrictions of film itself, he's like, I'd prepped it so we could film 10 minutes a day mm. or like, like of the film. And then if obviously, if that 10 minutes didn't work in real time, we've got a few we can go a few times so if, if anything it would take right uh, but like do you know what I mean like apart from setting yeah. up the actors would only really be like acting for maximum yeah. like yeah. an hour and a, uh, 30 minutes of the day and then like obviously like that didn't that didn't come to to four that kind of all like fell to the wayside when they're like it's not gonna look good with the lighting francis because obviously like <laughs> yeah. you mentioned like i think it was something like there was ten thousand watts to power that like that street like the strip that they create which is yeah it's yeah. it's fascinating Insane, yeah. yeah 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 the, yeah i think it's he he was interviewed i've seen him a couple of times talking about um why he did it this way and i think there is a control control freak element to it as you're <laughs> suggesting whereby 
yeah, the wild, the wild nature of the Pockets Now shoot must have been like an unrelenting nightmare. <laughs> and um, so he thought, well, I'm going to do this stage-bound musical, stage set-bound musical, where I'm in con- total control of every element of this production. You know, I can the whole thing's within within these on these vast stages. You know, there's no we don't have to worry about the weather. You know, I mean, they, there's a big it rains in the climactic scene, the ch- the airport visit chase scene such as it is um but yeah he's in complete control and down to that video th- village thing that he invented really which mm-hmm. now is just normal now you know directors of major motion pictures every set i've ever been on pretty much is, is the director sits there in some kind of tent with a video monitor you know <laughs> not really not really talking to any human beings sometimes that, that's not always but sometimes um and so yeah and controlling the lighting as you say the beautiful lighting the beautiful cinematography and all of that um so he had complete control over every single element of this film um but at the expense of then 26 million dollars which was not that much less than apocalypse now by the way you know a couple of years later so still a massively expensive Mm -hmm. film by any standards as you say with these with these (laughs) huge numbers of neon light bulbs when he recreated all those um all those the sunset strip and yeah that street in vegas what I find great is Francis Ford Coppola has said that he wanted to make something small after Apocalypse <laughs> yeah. Now. And he was yeah. like, right. he, he worried like the, the finances he'd put on the line for Apocalypse Now. He's like, we'll do something small, like $2 million, and we can kind of recoup any losses we got from Apocalypse Now or anything like that. Obviously, Apocalypse Now became a massive hit. And then yeah. it was one from the heart that, snowball mm. rolled and rolled mm. and rolled the budget went out of control and it, it it took francis ford coppola seven films to pay off his debt that he had obviously yeah. like losing zoetrope and kind of yeah like the the the, the folly i, I, I actually d- and i actually don't think he ever recovered i don't think he mm. recovered because yeah he, he did go on to to make you know, he made quite a few films and a lot of them were, were, were pretty good you know i, I love Rumblefish, um mm-hmm. for example and um, those Essie Hinton, The Outsiders, those Essie Hinton adaptations, and um, I like The Cotton Club, but they were, he's, he ended up making deeply flawed, um, I would say, you know, um, yeah. curios quite a lot of the time, of which this is the first, in a way. <laughs> this is the, the, the biggest and the most out, uh, like overwrought curio that, that happened to end up costing nearly $30 million, <laughs> huge amount of the time. Um, and I don't think his career ever recovered, really. I mean, he went on to make The Godfather Part Three, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. semi-reluctantly, didn't he? And I mean, that was revamped um, recently, I thought, to, to, to good effect. Um, I'm sure you've, you know, that's another whole other podcast. But why, <laughs> but, I, but I think after the run, because this was his first, this, the run was The Godfather, The Conversation, mm-hmm. The Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, One from the Heart. <laughs> that was the run. And those first four films are absolute masterpieces. Um, which, you know, will never, whereas this thing, one from the heart, which I love, but is a massively flawed, bizarre thing in comparison to those. And I think from then on his career, I don't think he's ever made a, I don't think he ever made a film after this that was anywhere near the level of those four, that run of four in the 70s, that stunning run of four masterpieces. Well, I guess it's like uh, Hollywood contemporaries all like had a rough 80s to some extent. They all kind of had that big... Yeah whether it's one or two big films that kind of like are real stinkers or, or people just like they oh. didn't hit the way they 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Scorsese, it kind of happened with New York, New York to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind yeah, of yeah, like what wasn't like off the kind of like hot streak he had. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Michael Cimino kind of, what was he, two and done? Like the second one yeah. was so bad. It's like, I'm, I'm out of it. And then, yeah, like I, I, you kind of look at night like around the same time. I guess De Palma was the one who kind of was still on top of his game what it would have been the yeah. year before this you would have had blowout yeah yeah but yeah. that even blowout was a big blowout was a, was a, was a was a was a disaster for him because that was as well um and didn't do well and so he he, he even he, he had his that was a big problem for him and that's him back a long time um i remember until he, i think you know he ended up doing the Untouchables or Mission Impossible or both or whatever. But for a long time, he was a bit of a pariah after he ended up doing Body Double, which is, I mean, I love Body Double, but it's absolutely demented um, film. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, all of those, you know, a lot of cocaine fueled, let's face it. Um, and I'm not, I don't think, I don't think Coppola did much cocaine or if any, in fact, I don't think he's a real cokehead. Um, unlike, you know, most of those yeah. other um, maverick 70s American directors. Um, but it feels excessive. One from the heart feels excessive for what it should be for that small film. It's a small film within a massively elaborate, needlessly, needlessly elaborate um, setting and technique. I I think that's the charm about it, and like that's what like mm. kind of reading some of the like reviews online and stuff like that. It's like uh, I think it's yeah, TV Guide like review just says razzle dazzle, gimmicking photography techniques that dwarf a trivial story. Like it is like, and I guess that is the, that is one of the like big criticisms I guess most people have about one from the heart is it is like, it's a style over substance, I guess is what, what most yeah. people dislike about it. So when, yeah, when would you have first seen this film? Did you see it in the cinema? I did. Yeah. It, it, so it didn't really get a proper release, you know, um, it, it, because it was so, um that was so it was the subject of such um uh excess and um delay and uh originally mgm was supposed to distribute it and then they pulled out and then paramount took over and and i remember reading about how francis coppola put put his own screenings on in new york mm-hmm. for it um for like critics and for you know the equivalent back then of influencers in 1982 1981 82 so it never really got proper release and certainly not in this country it wasn't you know you couldn't go down the odeon you know where, where i lived um and see one from the heart i, I so my, i think i saw it at the ica in london on the mall you know the um mm-hmm. the uh kind of art house one of the ultimate art house cinemas in London, and um, on on the first week of, re- of in quotes release, but it was just it was pretty much just at the ICA in my memory, and maybe one other venue I think you know kind of art houses basically it might have been at you know the NFT as it was known back then known as the BFI, so I saw it, but it's very clearly, but I remember very clearly going to see it at the um, at the ICA on the day it came out because I was a huge couple of fan by then, mm-hmm. heard all about this bizarre sounding film desperate <laughs> to see it and um and i was pretty I, and, I, and i kind of loved it whilst I, I loved it whilst admitting simultaneously that it's massively flawed <laughs> at the same time uh, but i'll never forget the uh i'll never forget sitting there watching it as the that opening which is the sound of um the um the ball 
going down the um, what's it called the roulette wheel, yeah. um, and then that goes on for quite a long time in total darkness, and then the kind of this curtain effect, and the curtains open like it is a opening to a stage musical, and then you've got this title sequence where all the um, titles, all the all the credits are run on kind of fake Las Vegas signs, all of that. I loving. I was like, this is definitely living up to my wildest dreams of what I wanted this film to be. I also liked Tom Tom Waits as well by that point, so. The soundtrack by Tom Waits and Crystal Gale was so it was all like, oh, this is all brilliantly working for me. And there, I remember thinking to myself halfway through, it's actually a bit boring. You know, <laughs> like, if I'm honest, if I'm brutally honest, um, it gets a quite boring in the middle. It gets kind of bogged down, you know, in, in these, mm-hmm. in, 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 I mean, the, the floors are myriad, but I remember being very, uh, he's not great, you know, um, Frederick Forrest. No. He's, you know, he's one of Francis Coppola's favourite actors. You know, he's in Apocalypse Now. He's in, he's in practically, you know, in that yeah. period he was in all his films, I think, more or less. Um, but he's not really a leading man, I don't think. I think that's one of the problems with the film. He's kind of like, he's like a schlub, which is like, it's just the idea. But imagine someone else being, imagine Nick Cage in this film. Yeah. In fact. Seriously. I mean, I, you know, it's just, Nick Cage's charisma could drive the schlubbiness mm-hmm. to a different level. Whereas... Frederick Forrest just kind of not quite got it, not quite got what you need for a leading man. Anyway, but 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 to your, the question—that's a long-winded answer to your question. I no, saw no, in the no, cinema. On, on, I'm pretty perfect. sure on the day it came out in, in this country. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. See, I kind of, I kind of hope one day that this gets the like. I think because obviously you, you must see it. Like films kind of get these weird like reappraisals years later and yeah. stuff like that. And I kind of yeah. Because one of the things I googled when like doing research for this was like, has Damien Chazelle said anything oh. about this oh. film? And there's no, there's nothing. Like there's even like I think it was LA, really? LA Times. He kind of listed three films that were like inspirations for La La Land. But I was like, oh, the the fingerprints of One from the Heart are just kind yeah. of all yeah, over that film. Yeah. Like especially right. like yeah, because yeah, let's kind of talk about that. You mentioned um, in your synopsis that that dance sequence, which for me is like it's so good. But like I think that that is like because the the lull comes after that, right? And it's that thing of like yeah, yeah. That is such a high note that it's like the film yeah. kind of runs yeah. out of steam a bit after that for some hundred uh, percent weird yeah. reason. Yeah, and it it just keeps oh yeah, totally yeah. You're left wanting more, right? Of that, just kind of like the razzle dazzle, yeah. Like the kind of right, yeah. You got this massive, yeah, exactly. You got this massive um, uh, dance sequence, some dance sequence where Terry Gar and Ralph, Terry Gar's given it some, you know. Yeah. And, and there's cars; she's hanging onto cars, isn't she, and all of that. And they've got car- yeah. hundreds of extras. Um, it's a whole big number. And then she kind of goes back to his place and sleeps with him. And at the same time, and and, and Natasha Kinskis does this walks on the tightrope. Her their big kind of scene is in this backyard where he collects um props and things bric-a-brac yeah the bric-a-brac bit um which doesn't quite live up to the the massive hollywood you know the vegas dance sequence bit Mm -hmm. and from then on his thing just peters out with (laughs) nastasia kinski which is kind of like no i'm not that bothered after all you know and she kind of like is insulted quite rightly because she's you know stunningly beautiful and all that um and then yeah, Terry Gar kind of sleeps with the guy, and then yeah, and it it just it's like it just yeah, it absolutely peters out at that point. And um, it, it, it tonally uh, gets uh, really weird because 
yeah. on on the, the like morning after the night before, Frederick Forrest's character Hank, like all of a sudden, like he's in like a screwball comedy because when he's like trying to call, yeah. call up um, Mo, like Harry Dean Stanton's character, he's like he's like standing on a broom and it's hitting him in the head and like he's like oh, sl- I know. slinking around that motel and like trying to try. Well, to then he grabs he grabs. Terry go and carries her off in, yeah. in, a, in a grotesquely dated mm-hmm. um, sequence. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, tone, the tone of the film is is really weird because it was originally supposed to be a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. as I understand it, and it ends up being a romantic comedy musical without the comedy. Um, <laughs> and it's like they resisted jokes very, mm-hmm. very deliberately and tried to make it kind of weirdly. It's like a weird mix of kind of realism in a way because the way that they argue of fight is kind of banal but but authentic like you know how couple couples do fight yeah. really um and and yet you've got this the glamour and the and the excess of vegas on top of all that and the neon and the lighting the beautiful settings and all of that so it's kind of a weird it's well, the whole thing is tonally weird because it's very down to earth the two characters are very down to earth and quite basic to use that yeah. current term but they're in the middle of this vast, elaborate, lavish musical, and the and there's it's it's a romantic comedy, with, as I say. But there are very almost no jokes, and if there are jokes, they're very thrown away. Um, and so, and it's almost like the dialogue is un is de heightened. It's almost like is 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 it's almost like they want they didn't want the dialogue to be too um, snappy, you know. And it's, so it's like a, it's like one of those classic Hollywood musicals with the with the with the with the elements the kind of key elements removed, mm-hmm. particularly the dialogue because you think those films those you know brilliant singing in the rain and you know one of the greatest yeah. films of all time. If you watch that film, it's brilliantly written. You know the scripts are brilliant of that that film it's not just the song and dance numbers that are incredible the dialogue has a real snap to it you know uh, and, the, and the same goes for most of those classic classic Hollywood musicals but this one is very prosaic you know the the um the dialogue is is quite banal again you know one of the odd but i can only imagine deliberate things about the film i think you know at one point his character mo starts talking about not mo sorry um hank starts talking about everything's fake in america mm-hmm. and you think oh that's the point of the film right that's yeah. the point that's the message everything's fake and these two characters are in the middle of a very banal relationship and the only way they can kind of keep it exciting in their heads is to almost turn it into their own lavish fantasy musical mm-hmm. but actually there's that's about all there all there is to say about it and you yeah. know if their relationship is meant to be somehow and the way they regard it as a reflection of you know of america of glossy fake america then fine but it doesn't really work i don't think it really works it doesn't really come together one of the things that Francis Ford Coppola said that was a massive influence on this was Kabuki theater. So like when right. he was filming yeah. Apocalypse Now, yeah. it's going through Japan. And he said like the way that Kabuki theater works in that every element works together and whatever like the strength of that element is, whether it's like, we'll take the film, for example, if it's the, the, the music, then let the music tell the story. If it's the set, let the set tell the story. If it's dance, mm. whatever, whatever like, is the strength of that to progress the story. But where this kind of falls down, like, and you're saying about like old like classic Hollywood musicals, is when the songs come in, and myself, I'm also a Tom Waits fan, it's that thing of like, if that's to like narratively push the story forward, it, it would be great if you could like, understand what tom waits is saying because instead you've got, <laughs> got, like, 
right, right. Like, do you know what I mean? It's a bit like, yeah, yeah. And, and then some yeah. of the songs he has got, like when you start to really like pick out the lyrics, you're like, well, this is a bit on the nose. Do you know what I mean? I think it's oh, like, yeah, yeah, of course. There's the yeah, song. there's no way around that. Yeah, there's no way around the on the nose thing, is there? Because if you're going to ask the, the the songs, the soundtrack to tell the story, yeah. then it's going to be it's going to be literally. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's weird. And it's kind of odd to have Tom Waits because Tom Waits, I mean, you're right. There's, there is the mumbling, husky mumbling. And I, I often wonder why Frederick Forrest kind of seems to speak like Tom Waits sings. And yeah. I wondered often why maybe that's why he chose him to be the lead because it kind of works quite well. He sounds like Tom Waits, really. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like if he's going to sing, you'd want him to sing like Tom Waits. So I can see what that, what's going on there. But you're right. The soundtrack is brilliant. And I love it. I love those songs. They're incredible. But they are very, very on the nose. Um, I was trying to think of the names of the songs. Yeah, it's particularly later on, isn't it? Old Boyfriends, um, I Beg Your Pardon, Little Boy Blue, which is literally like blue. There's a it's steeped in blue neon lighting. Yeah. Um, take Me Home, when she lit- when she arrives at the end, the most on the button <laughs> one of all, when she literally is saying, take me home, you know, I've, I've rejected Raul Julia and going to Bora Bora and I'm going to stick with you in this, in this Vegas shithole. I, I think so, I yeah. think that there's a lyric when he's in the airport and like Franny's gone away and it's like the lyric is something to the extent of like and there's a man from South America who's taken your girl how's that make you feel and it's like we get it like yeah. visually you can yeah. tell he, he he is pissed off that Raul yeah. has taken his girl it's like well, you, yeah. don't, you don't need Tom Waits then crooning as well to be like absolutely home yeah so, yeah like what like what are the the cast wise you're saying like frederick forrester uh, frederick forrest falls down are there any standouts in the cast for you well i think terry goss but i love terry goss mm. so my I, I i think the um you know i loved terry goss was the 70s for me you know in mm-hmm. terms of the f- female leads and you know when you talk about close encounters the third comedy which is my favorite films of all time um the goodbye girl we've seen the goodbye girl which is a neil mm-hmm. simon comedy she did also with richard dreyfus um, Richard Dreyfus and her together. I, he 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 could have done that. He yeah. could have done this film. It would have been it would have been different. It would have been more comedic because Richard Dreyfus is is so naturally funny. But, but it would have been better, <laughs> guaranteed. That was my <laughs> strong feeling about it. Um, uh, this film would have been magnitude better with someone like Richard Dreyfus in that role. Apart from Frederick Forsyth, Frederick Forsyth, <laughs> Frederick Forsyth, <laughs> Frederick Forrest. Um, that would have been interesting casting. <laughs> Frederick Forsyth, the author of. Um, Thrillers, spy thrillers. Um, so, um, but she, Terry Gar, is phenomenal. And I think, um, you know, from, she's so, um, she's kind of oozing enthusiasm and, um, for, you know, and, and kind of misery when she's stuck with this lunk, this annoying, boring man who is, you know, has very few redeeming features, yeah. let's face it. But she is, is a bundle of energy, and um, and and she wants more, and that and she 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 convinces completely in that. There are annoying moments. She's got kind of annoying moments in 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 the arguments that she has, but that's due to the script and and yeah. and, and not her. You know, she 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 managed she still manages to deal with the annoying elements of the whole thing. <laughs> but I think she's great. I love her. I think she's absolutely phenomenal. I I I'm not. I have to say, casting wise, it's interesting. I mean, I. I have to underline, I, I do love this film in many, many ways, but it's almost despite all of these things. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like when you love something, you know, even though you know it's got, it's, it's this, I I'm not a huge fan of Ralph Julia either. Mm-hmm. 
he's supposed to be this stunningly good yeah. looking, right? Um, like, go, everyone's swooning over him. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, it's revealed quite that he's a waiter in the restaurant, which is a nice reveal. Yeah. But he's just not. You know, like, it's like a, you know, it's like, I don't get it. You know, I'm sorry. Sorry, Ral. I don't get that the, you're <laughs> supposed to be this spectacularly sexy guy. Um, and I don't feel there's any chemistry between him and Terry Gar either, mm, by the way. No. Um, so that doesn't work. Nastasia Kinski was an absolute, she was like, um, you know, she at that moment in time, she was a hugely sought after, you know, kind yeah. of um, beauty in quotes. Um, but she can't really act, <laughs> I don't yeah. think, in this film. She's not great. She's kind of served with a nothing role where she falls in love with Frederick Froese after 10 seconds and is a bit whiny and crying and, you know, she's she's nothing. But she it works more because she is, they just use her face, don't they? Literally, at one point, a yeah. giant face as a, as a context over that neon billboard. So I think she, she works, but for me, Terry Gar's really the only fully successful... Oh, and Harry Dean Stanton, of course, Harry Dean Stanton. I, but I, at that I, point, I, just... You know, yeah, kind of reprising the role that he always played. <laughs> you know? I mean, I love him. God love him. But yeah, Harry Dean Stanton pops up as Harry Dean Stanton. And I, he's fun. And he's fun. He's fun. I think it's those like small players who really make this film shine in certain aspects. Mm. Like when you've when you've got someone like um Harry Dean Stanton for like the moments he's in, he's kind of got that deadpan droll and kind of yeah as his second man or Lainey Kazan as Maggie, like she's uh, good, yeah. Terry Garth. Yeah, you're right. And um, who's the other guy? He's he's also in the conversation. Uh, I want to say Alan Granger. Oh, Alan Garfield. Alan Garfield. The, the restaurant. The... Yeah, the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. scene. Is, that scene is great. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good scene. Yeah, where where you find out where Ralph Julius <laughs> she finds out he's just a waiter and she thinks he's supposed to be this singer. This you know, yeah. and um, he just stops being a waiter live on the spot. And the, the owner gets really annoyed and everyone gets really annoyed. They just want to have their food. That is a funny scene. That's it. That's one of the best scenes. That isn't really reliant on, um, you know, any great special effects or lighting or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's just a funny, it's fun. It's, that's that's probably the best scene, I would say. Powerful. Um, with that, apart from the spectacle, the spectacular stuff, which I love, the, the song and dance numbers and the, the um, and the big neon swooping camera moves. <laughs> that, that scene as well, on the table... Next to uh, Terry Gar and Raul Julia is uh, is it Rebe uh, Rebecca De Mornay is on the table. Rebecca De Mornay, right? Yeah, in, in yeah. like one of her first roles, and I'm not sure if you picked yeah. up on this in the credits, but like she's she's like credited as uh, Terry Gar's understudy. Un understudy, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because there's yeah. this whole yeah. strange thing that they like Francis Ford Coppola, I guess, was trying to relive his college days of being a theater kid and wanted to yeah come. yeah it's, and it's yeah we, it's, you, yeah the, it's, the, the, it's bizarre yeah it's bizarre there, yeah there's so, so many saying is, like, what you're saying is even though um terry girl is in this film is in practically every single scene if like she'd had a cold one day that he would have had Rebecca de Mornay take over from her in on that yeah. day shooting and she would have just <laughs> arrived in the middle of the film because she's supposed to be the understudy absolutely crazy yeah and of course i know you're going to mention the scene in the lifts with you know, with his parents. Yeah, well, sorry, who, who, I'm sorry, I beat you to that. No, no, I, I get that, but that's it's kind of it's kind of bizarre because like the way that is filmed, like they almost like don't look like they don't know what to do in that scene. They're kind of <laughs> yeah. both going like, yeah, uh, is the camera still rolling? And then like, obviously, yeah, 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 they they draw the attention because they're like kind of front and center in frame. Whereas you've got like Raul Julia, you're right, yeah. 
Raul Julia really giving it, going like, I'm on my knees, yeah. like really like yeah. it up to the, the eyeballs. And then, yeah. yeah. It is a weird mix. That scene encompasses one of the odd things about this film, one of the myriad <laughs> odd things about this film, which is that it's oddly shambolic and ramshackle for a film which is so meticulously, clearly storyboarded and designed and lit and shot to within an inch of its life. And yet, you're right, a scene like that, and there are a few moments like that where it's almost like Francis Coppola just went, I'll oh, just say, what you, you know, just make it up on the spot and we'll, 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 we'll film it and it'll, it'll be fine. Because it feels very, almost like the sound isn't right either. It's a bit weird, you can't quite... People talk over each other a lot, which is obviously a classic Robert Altman technique. But there's quite a lot of scenes where people are talking over each other and you can't quite make out exactly what anyone's saying. And it's like, Francis Coppola's going, it doesn't really matter what the fuck anyone's saying. It's all about the grand swooping imagery and the, the long... Steady cam shots, and you know, at the end of the day, that's what I'm interested in. I'm not really that bothered about the detail, and that was one of those things that that elevator scene with his parents is a bit like that. It's a bit shambolic, yeah. Yeah, there's a few like was it? It's just steeped in very odd things. Like when you look at like there's two cinematographers on this, and I, I think mm. one, one of them was only brought in because there were union rules that he couldn't have an Italian like and 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 that was that was like across the board for a lot of the crew and they're like none of them have got yeah. union cards so we're gonna have to have double the amount of crew just to so these guys are here yeah. just to tick a box and it's yeah it's <laughs> it's, it's also shot yeah you're right Vittorio Storaro is the main the main yeah. um cinematographer of course from Apocalypse Now and it, it's and you know worked with a couple of many many times but yeah. um there's also the the um aspect ratio Yes. As well. Have you, do you think, yeah. So it's shot in 1.37 to 1 aspect ratio, which is basically TV, old school, square <laughs> TV shaped. And not, as you might expect, the, the widescreen of Apocalypse Now, for example, which I think was originally shot 2 to 1 aspect ratio, I think. And then sometimes it's seen 2.3. I can go down a whole aspect ratio <laughs> um, hole. But... It's weird. This, I think, is Francis Cobbler's only film shot in this aspect ratio. And I think it was because he's, he, he, he was burned by having, pan, at that point, TV, TV showings of classic films of his and everyone else, basically, were, were completely marred by having been squashed into the mm -hmm. TV site shape. This is before widescreen TVs that now have come completely yeah. normal. Back then, so they would pan and scan, um, you know, classic films to fit them into the shape yeah. of the TV Square. So he thought, I'm not having that. The only way to defeat that is to literally direct one from the heart, this huge big film, and keep it into the square shape uh, to start with. Uh, but it is odd now. So now you watch it now, and it's um, in a square in the middle. And, and actually, the, funny enough, that that's where it's going back into fashion a lot more now, with people doing squarer, um, more, I guess, feeling it more intense. I guess um, Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League, he, he made in that same shape, yeah, that square or, shape. Or the, yeah, the lighthouse and. Grand Budapest yeah, Hotel right, dr drifts yeah. into it. As it, and, it is, yeah. uh, and, and I think it comes down to the, that fact that he said he was trying to experiment with mixing TV, theatre and film, which like, yeah. And, yeah. and it is one of those things, I know it's a, it's a hard sell for a lot of people because it's like one of those films that once you do like some background reading and research into it as well and then watch it again, like even though like, I was kind of taken with it the first time. The more I read about it, the more like I'm weirdly impressed by the film because it's mm. like, despite all this stuff, and it was like the, the studio was kind of 
was literally crumbling and crumbled before the film yeah. even came out. So it's like it was yeah. day one. Yeah, it's got all this. It's got this weird charm, and like you said, despite all of the like, um, like odd things in it, and like bad decisions that were made, and clunky script stuff, and like I think you look like behind, yeah, behind the camera and like on set, like this uncredited consultant of this film is Gene Kelly for like the, the yeah, yeah yeah choreography, and yeah. it's like yeah. Wow. Well, I think they had an argument, didn't they? Yeah, yeah about yeah, that. Gene Kelly, yeah, was had a vision of the, the dance, big dance sequence, and um, Francis Cobbler just ignored his advice. So I think I think that's pretty impressive to bring in Gene Kelly and then ignore him. I think is classic, classic seventies maverick film director uh, technique. Yeah. So I found a amazing, like, sh- very short documentary, twenty eight minutes long, called "The Dream Factory," which is all about, like, you said, like. Yeah, you said earlier, like, you'd love to see a documentary. It's only 28 minutes, but, like, there's a documentary right. about about the kind of filming, about this kind of... Oh, a okay. Bit, a bit Is that on the DVD release? Um, I found it on you. Some It's literally like a month... On YouTube? Off, on okay. YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's called The Dream. Oh, Factory. okay. And um, there, is a, there is a moment in that, and um, it goes into the kind of Zootrope Studios thing and, like, what was going on around this. I think it was, like, 23 sound stages and... Wow. As as we've said, this was supposed to be a, a small film. By the yeah. end of it, there were sets on all twenty three sound stages. Francis wow. Ford Coppola had like kind of fallen in love with this high school across the street and had like three hundred kids just kind of like coming over to like see how like the 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 magic of the movies and stuff like that. And he had these like grand wow. plans of. We will have a four-day week, and apparently every Friday night there's like footage of the parties they used to have, and it would be like spill. But like it was like a who's who of kind of Hollywood was there. Yeah. There were people yeah. on stilts, like, and they would they would go they they would they would kind of have the party on whatever like soundstage they were filming on that day. So like to that point of like there needs to be like a kind of dramatization of this period yeah god yeah I, that's I, amazing yeah i i guess there's probably a lot of a lot of tales that for liableless reasons that people can't tell yeah and, and yeah if they could it would be it will have to be like a considerable amount of time passed once everybody's yeah like kick the buck oh yeah. completely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, maybe i was too maybe i was being too kind when i said there wasn't much any any cocaine going on you could <laughs> i'm not making any specific allegations i'm just saying there might have been some i'm I, not certainly not with the school kids but there may have been <laughs> consumption at those well, who I, knows I, I think what's like i i don't think france ford coppola has because obviously like one of the books i've read whilst doing this is Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, kind of yeah. pick that up again, yeah. And like that—that that is a yeah. very like scandalous book, and like there is no mention of Francis Ford Coppola doing cocaine. Oh something. right, good. That's what uh, I thought. Yeah, yeah I yeah. read the same. That's where my I read the same book, and I think that's where I'm getting my um yeah. my opinion from there when it comes to that. Yeah, where a lot of that book is very like we're gonna salt and pepper it a bit here and there like add, yeah, add, yeah. add a bit onto stories like you would have thought they would have yes. mentioned Francis Ford Coppola uh yeah doing, doing some uh nose toots um so I guess other yeah what are you like are there big bugbears with this film and like how do you think it kind of it stands up today looking at it 
I think I, I think I've already I've probably covered quite a few bugbears, but I would say um, yeah, it is mass. I mean, again, to repeat myself, massively flawed um, <laughs> casting wise, dialogue wise, particularly. It could have you know could have done with. I was funny because the guy he wrote it with. I was looking this up today. Um, so it was written by Francis Coppola and Armian Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And Armian Bernstein's um, CV as writer is, thank God it's Friday in 1978, which was like a disco comedy. One from the heart, Windy City, um, which is neither here nor there. Cross My Heart, films involving the word heart with Martin <laughs> Short and Annette O'Till, which I remember being terrible. Um, the Hurricane, uh, which was a decent film about I mean, I'm just saying his career isn't exactly golden. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think, the, I think the, the, the dialogue in the script is one of the weakest elements of the whole film. Um, the datedness, it's interesting because almost because Francis Coppola was inventing a new way of filmmaking as this film was happening, it does feel very dated because you sit there and you think, I think if I showed this to, you know, um, a teenager who just watched Zack, a Zack Snyder film. In fact, I don't, you know, Zack Snyder's newest film is, of course, Army of the Dead mm-hmm. on Netflix, which is a Las Vegas set zombie spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thinking about it, like the title sequence, probably the first two minutes of the title sequence of that film, of of Las Vegas based zombie mayhem, feels like this entire massive film that cost then an astonishing amount of money and time and effort, bankrupted Francis Coppola. It feels like that's much more impressive and spectacular than this entire whole film manages in a quite slightly drawn out, you know, near, nearly two hours or less. Do you know what I mean? It's like everything he was trying to do, you can now do in about a minute. Yeah. I could, you could probably do it on your, on your, on your, you know, on an iMac and a, and a, and a bit of um, editing and software. Yeah. It's so, so it now feels quite basic. Mm-hmm. But back then it felt incredible. Like I was like, I remember being bowled over by, oh, you know, Nastasia Kinski's face is in that yeah. <laughs> little neon, huge big neon sign. And they keep they, they intercut without editing between one character and another, just using lighting and yeah. and effects, basically. Seamless effects. And I remember thinking, oh, all the all, the, all these long tracking shots of Terry Gard just walking through this fake Vegas set is wonderful, but now you're like, what the what the fuck is the point? You can literally <laughs> destroy Vegas in a minute in a Zack Snyder film, and it's a complete waste of time. So, I think from that point of view, it's really dated, almost like more dated than a, than a lot of films from this era, and probably more dated than pretty much every other Francis Coppola film. Way more dated, you know, than The Godfather and, and those films use classic film taking techniques. It's almost because of the ambition of this film. And the, and that kind of artificial quality it's got, it does feel really really badly dated. I think. So, I, yeah, <laughs> that's my. Yeah, I I think because like they never got to kind of realise the Zoetrope Studios like kind of yeah. repertory theatre like kind of churning out to to want of a better phrase like these these kind of stories like year on year out that they never got to build on it. So this is like. It is very much a curio, and like, yeah, no, I don't think any other film really looks like it. Obviously, it uses no. like no. it uses other techniques. Obviously, like you can go way back to the forties and fifties and see films on, like, all on sound stages. And I know that uh, Franz Ford Coppola would have had, like, would have dipped his toe in that with Finian's Rainbow in like the sixties. Like, oh of, yeah, yeah, one of oh, the I can't last... stand that either. Yeah, yeah, one of the one of the last like kind of yeah. attempts at like a Warner Brothers like musical mm. or whatever. And it's like 
I I can only like imagine how like I don't know like the the parallel universe would be living in if he had actually gone you know what we're gonna we're actually gonna make this a musical musical do you know what I mean like get yeah. people in who can because it's it's just it is that thing that it's it's really walking that tightrope of like kind mm. of like all of these ideas and like doesn't quite nail it and i think the the, no. the moments that shine as i mentioned before are the kind of big song and dance numbers even though yeah yeah even natasha kinski gets that one song she's not particularly good at singing either like no 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 exactly yeah um yeah i agree i, I think i think yeah even though it looks amazing and then you know and you're right, they're right. It doesn't look unique. I can't think of any other films apart from, you know, Las Vegas set films that anything that uses the, the Las Vegas strip as a kind of visual, um, yeah. as a strong visual iconic look is going to be reminiscent. But this is so bathed in it. And literally, you know, every single shot is pretty much neon bathed. And, you know, all, all, all the, the way that the color, the color scheme of it is astonishing. But even that is dated. Even that feels dated, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, seen, and, and that aspect ratio, go on. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I've seen, I've seen people post out of context stills from this film on Twitter. And then like yeah. kind of reading the comments of like, I, I guess there is like this, yeah, it is a curio because people go like, what the fuck is that? And I'm like, you mentioned mm. it, that thing of like Nat- Natasha Kinski's face, like really massive. Yeah, that's like, it. Yeah. yeah. Or, or like and the shot of the shot. The shot of Terry Gold just walking yeah. down the street with the with the the, the mm-hmm. neon that's um, reflected in the puddles, the the water yeah. puddles is is an is an iconic shot. But maybe I'm being slightly too harsh on the dated thing. But I think <laughs> I think it's a bit of a shock to the system. Obviously, I watched yeah. it again, you know, um, and way more than you know the Apocalypse Now's and the Godfather's. It, it does feel mm-hmm. dated. The, the way it's made, the way it's made, and the way it's I mean everything from the dialogue to the acting style oh, yeah. to the. It, 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 it's definitely yeah. You're right. It's a museum piece rather than a um, mm-hmm. a film that stands up in the way that most of Francis Coppola's best films really do still stand up. You know, if you if you if I sat a fifteen year old in front of Pocket Snell, that is still an, a spectacular, epic, brilliantly made piece of work. Even even in these days of CGI, you know, even if a fifteen year old is going to assume that the helicopters are CGI and they didn't really fly them, you know, over this this land and they didn't really, you know, drop fake bombs and. Mm-hmm destroy huge fake city, fake villages even though they did um i think they'd be amazed by the spectacle of apocalypse now whereas i think they'd be fine this weird like a weird this is just yeah. a weird film you know in the, in, and, and that's again why i love it the weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> amazing so um let's yeah let's get round and, and score this film but before we do that could you find any coppola connections with this film are there people who have branched out and maybe worked with other Coppolas along their way in their career? Um, well, I mean, there's so many, there's so many Coppolas <laughs> in it. I mean, there's, his parents are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Frederick Forrest has been, as I say, has been in loads of his films. He was in the film um, Hammett, which, which um, Wim Wenders made that, that um, was a Zoetrope production. Yeah. That came after this. That that apparently Francis Ford Coppola kind of co-directed in the end. Um, but in answer to your question, um, beyond those obvious things, no. 
So a, a, a couple of ones I could find. Obviously, you've got a Tom Waits connection with, uh, I think he's uncredited as a trumpet player in this. He's obviously in the Outsiders, Rumblefish, Cotton Club, Dracula and Twixt. Um, Dean Tra- oh, yeah. uh, Tavalet, the production designer, has kind of been, again, one of Francis Ford Coppola's go-to guys. And I think that's what's really interesting looking at Francis Ford Coppola films is like, he, he always like treats his actors like and the people he works with like family like in the oh, yeah. kind of like yeah. once they're in like they're they're sticking about like and it's interesting to see like the conversation which was like the last Francis Ford Coppola film I covered on this podcast and then seeing both Terry Gar and um right uh Frederick Forrest in that as smaller yeah. characters because obviously Terry Gar plays Harry Cole's like booty call i guess yeah for want of a better phrase than yes that. uh frederick yeah. forrest gets the gets the the killer line doesn't he the um he'd kill us if he had the chance like and yeah uh yeah and uh terry guy is also in the black stallion which uh oh yeah good call Car- yeah yeah Car- carmine coppola did the score for and i think is another zoe trope production and, uh, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. I went to see that. That was boring as well. That was I a look, big disappointment. I look forward to covering that one on the podcast at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that one. And then um, a couple of yeah, Nick Cage connections. Goes like to see if people work with Nick Cage. Frederick Forrest is in Valley Girl, so the first kind of big mm. screen film that Nick Cage was in. Harry Dean Stanton is yeah. in The Godfather Part Two. Wild at Heart. And Nick Cage's only film he's ever directed, the very bizarre Sonny from the year 19. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Kind of, uh, what is it, American gigolo for a new generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, as the Coppolas are a family who love their wine, they produce it, what would you find to be the perfect wine pairing for this film, Boyd? Well, I think it's got to be champagne, really. It's got to be a bubbly, a bubbly yeah. um, thing, you know. So, um, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be a lavish champagne. I think. Has has it got better with age, or do you think it's kind of it, it's, it's it's gone on the turn? It's it's um, I think it's it's maintained its fizziness. I would say <laughs> that. So it hasn't gone on the turn. I don't think it's got better with age, but it's fine. It's still like it's full of fizz and vim and vigor and life but it's not like it's not like an, a completely indelible legendary champagne it's like a kind of you know it's a it's a, it's a kind of it's a delight but not one you'd like cherish for you know i don't know yeah <laughs> i'm getting too deep into that but it's it's absolutely fine <laughs> perfect and how much are you paying for this wine are you are you getting on your tiptoes to go to the to the high shelf or are you it, it, yeah i think high medium to high shelf yeah i think i think it's a good you know 25 30 quid i would say a bottle yeah perfect perfect so um as always ask um yeah would you recommend people check out this film if they haven't already and obviously haven't ruined it for themselves by listening to all these spoilers yeah with the i would with the with the massive caveat that it it is a a museum piece i would say Mm -hmm. think of it as you know don't think of it as this is an absolute cast iron classic you're going to love every minute of and you're going to worship the day you heard about it and thank god to this podcast for bringing it to your attention <laughs> instead it's it's like going to a museum and seeing something odd and kind of unique 
yeah. and bold and daring and weird and not entirely successful and quite heavily dated, but lovable, essentially lovable, I think. Yeah. I kind of keep peti- like keep wanting to petition one of these like boutique film distributors like uh yeah give this like the kind of uh blu-ray treatment well, I th- I yeah never been it a, never been out on blu-ray is it no it's no. still quite hard to get on dvd never it's not on any of the it's on american itunes not mm-hmm. on british itunes it was on movie but now it's off movie <laughs> um so <laughs> Uh, it's hard to get hold of. Yeah, it's hard. Where did you see it? How did you see? It? I've got, I've got, got a, D, I've got a DVD, got DVD. copy. But right. the, even the DVD, it's like you can see, like at one point on my copy, there's like, the, the, it looks like a hair on. Do you know what I mean? Or like a kind of yeah. a, a something from <laughs> the film actually right. on the DVD. So like, right. right. Yeah, I'm kind of. Yeah. I, I know the the annoying thing is I know there's a Blu-ray out there. I think it got like a a French release. Um, oh really? Or yeah, it's got like a European release, but like hasn't, oh, okay. got, hasn't got like a, a, a UK release. And I kind of... No, that's annoying. You know I mean? yeah. you, you he look needs at, to sort that out. Yeah, he needs Because he's done, you know, he's like re-edited the Publics now a hundred times. And, you know, yes. The Godfather Part 3 and everything. But he needs to go back and sort this out properly. It's interesting that he hasn't. I think that's quite revealing. I wonder whether it's a bit of a, you know, he finds it, finds it a bit embarrassing maybe when it comes down to it. That I'm sure he doesn't with... I mean, this is all supposition on my part. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that he hasn't done a big re-release and a remaster and all that. The the American iTunes version is in HD. That's the only you know if in yeah if you know work out how to get an American iTunes account, it's perfectly legal. You can watch it that way. But it's annoying that it's not on UK iTunes. It's fucking weird. <laughs> Perfect. So um, this is uh, yeah. I'm going. I'm coming into like the questions that I'm glad I'm on this end of asking, which is. Sure. Uh, which couple of member, uh, which couple of family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmography of the rest of them. I mean, it's the easiest. That's Francis. It's Francis. <laughs> Francis. As I said right at the beginning. I'm afraid. Perfect. That's the, 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 the that's the quickest we've we've ever had on that. And um, I think I might agree. With, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to say either way yet because I need some suspense for the listeners. Uh, so. Are the Coppolas the greatest film family of all time? Yeah, I think they probably are. I think considering he, you know, as he's he's made a handful of cast iron masterpieces. I mean, Godfather one, two, the conversation and Apocalypse Now are, I would say, you know, you know, they're in they're in the content contention contenders for being among the greatest films of all time. All of them. Um, so for, then you've got. Sophia Coppola done done some really really good films um, herself, and is clearly a great filmmaker. She's proven that solidly. And Nick Cage, which of course was the starting point of your whole thing, um, is a legend as well. So yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't think of. Uh, there, have you just you must have discussed close rivals, but to, to, but I can't think of of many really. So, so it, yeah, and it kind of gets tricky when you look at them because obviously, like some people would argue like the the pharaohs because obviously like there is that woody allen connection oh god like like uh like uh, and then there's yeah there's 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 the houston's i think like the kind of they're the The one big contender with a lot of people um but i i I think it's 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 quite unfair asking people about the coppola family because there is just so many like when you start to get into yeah jason schwartzman talia like 
Yeah. Yeah. John John Schwartzman, who's kind of got this career as being like a, a blockbuster cinematographer, like working with right. Michael Bay, and then like he's done like Sea Biscuit, yeah. and like he's he, I think he did the last or like he did the first Jurassic World film, and has now come back to do the next one. So mm. they kind of cover every single weird base of cinema, and then I'm not even I haven't even touched on the kind of uh, straight-to-DVD offspring, who I'm not going to name, but listen- <laughs> listeners will be able to figure it out by the people yeah. who haven't yeah. been covered on the podcast just yet. Um, and, yeah, let me get on to possibly the, the, the reason for this whole thing. What I really want to know is, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Have you seen One from the Heart? <laughs> if not it, yeah if not yeah, why check it not why. check it out <laughs> perfect that's a, that's a perfect answer Boyd. where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing online and yeah all the podcasts and uh writing that you do uh it's my name at boyd hilton on um twitter and um instagram and i'm on uh the pilot tv podcast every week it comes out on a monday which if you want to know what good TV to watch, we, we'll be waiting with high anticipation for the uh, <laughs> Nick Cage Lion King series, whenever that happens. Um, and I'm in Heat Magazine every week, 199, your local news agent every Tuesday. And I'm the contributing editor to Empire Magazine. Amazing. So I have something in Empire every month. Yeah, pretty much every month. Um, I've got a lot in the next issue, actually. Um, yeah, so that's... That's enough, isn't it? <laughs> oh, and and, in, and and Arsenal footballistic Arsenal is my Arsenal podcast, but we're in the closed season now. So we we unlike other, there are about fifty thousand Arsenal podcasts. We don't we only broadcast during the um, during the season. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for yeah. As I said, taking a trip over to Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Vegas set and making some Coppola connections with me. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Cheers. And there we go, guys. A massive thank you for listening to this episode. And again, a massive thank you to Boyd Hilton for coming and talking about this film with me. Uh, If you haven't seen it and you've got to this point in the conversation, uh, really do check it out. It's a very interesting film. Good or bad, it's interesting. It's kind of, as, as Boyd mentioned, it's kind of this weird folly into doing what Francis Ford Coppola wanted to do and I don't know you can almost like you can't knock somebody for for doing what they want to do right even if it is unsuccessful in the long run you have one new message hi Petrus I watched one from the heart the other day and it was a pretty strange experience the production and visual flair of the whole thing was incredible but it felt really let down by the story I could excuse the plot being a bit thin because I was having so much fun with it, but the third act was just a major disappointment. It was a terrible decision to have Franny get back with Hank after all he'd said and done, especially when not long before this, we saw Hank drag Franny naked from Ray's motel room after he found out that she, much like himself, had met and slept with someone else. 
thought the film was setting us up for an ending where they stay separated and Hank, and Hank perhaps learns from his appalling behaviour as maybe a subversion of the genre, but alas, this wasn't to be. Thank you very much for Max Pentecost for sending that in. I couldn't agree more with him on that point of Hank's behaviour and how the film doesn't subvert what you would expect to happen in a kind of old-fashioned romance. Uh, doesn't really feel deserved on the part of Hank's character and um, I think it would have been a wholly more interesting film if they had kind of parted ways. Um, and if you would like to have your uh, thoughts and opinions on the podcast, be like Max and send in a voice note or even written. I'll, I'll do text to speech so it can be read out on the podcast or I'll just read them out. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the films we have coming up or like next week's episode, you have listened to the soundtrack of One From The Heart but haven't seen the film or you've seen the film and you kind of want to still have your say on it you can you can yeah you can drop me a voice note or whatever at caged in pod or you can hit me up on all the social media so that's twitter instagram facebook and letterbox where you can kind of get a slice of what is coming up on the podcast what will be the the films i'll be covering you can kind of work that out from what i'm watching and when i'm watching it um so yeah all of that is at caged in pod if you've enjoyed the podcast please be sure to support it by heading over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or rate review and subscribe on apple podcast acast or whichever podcast platform you're listening to this on right now so as always i've been petros patsilvis your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree and remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.